Thank you, W.O. and Mindy. It's a blessing to sing the old hymns. It really is. Uh, too bad Cody Fletcher's not here. He's one of my, if you know Cody Fletcher, you'll recognize him by a bow tie. That's all he always wears, a bow tie. And uh, he's known as the hem lover. That's on his name tag when he comes to the college room, the hem lover. And so he, he missed out. And um, that's okay. We're not going to hold him against him. He'll probably show up for free food. So we're going to do that. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk, uh, go through a work through a passage, pretty difficult passage. Um, and then we're going to go fellowship, hang out, and uh, spend some good quality time together. Passage that we're going to be breaking down today is Matthew 7. You can go ahead and turn there. Matthew 7, starting in verse 15. As you turn in there, the title of today's message is The Unsaved Christian. I wanted to go something with, that was super fluffy and wasn't super volatile. Uh, I say that sarcastically. Um, it actually came from a book that we went through as a college ministry this summer, The Unsaved Christian. Uh, it's by Dean Encierra, or Encerra, if you're from... West Texas, but if you say Dean and Sarah, it sounds like you're saying Dean and Sarah. So it gets confusing. So this is Dean, and he wrote a book for us called The Unsaved Christian. And uh, he's a fellow Liberty grad. Rise up. Rise up, Liberty grads. Um, Fellow Liberty grad, very proud of that, but he's also from Southern, so Blake can relate as well. But he pastors a church in Jacksonville, Florida, and grew up in the Bible Belt, uh, is pastoring the Bible Belt, and he starts off his book with an interesting illustration. I want you to consider this as we go through this. He was leaving seminary last day and they're going out to their assignments. He to go pastor a church in Florida, very, very Christianized place. And his buddy was gonna go to the Northwest somewhere. Uh, we'll say Portland. And Dean was just like, kind of jealous of him. You know, he's like, he gets to be on the front lines. He gets to go share the gospel. And he was like with people who have never heard the gospel before, never been around the gospel. And his friend, he expressed that to his friend. And his friend retorted and was like, dude, I think you're going to a much harder to reach group than where I'm going to. Because what we're talking about here is people who have grown up hearing the gospel over and over again. And for one reason or another, have not put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. I relate to this a lot. I grew up in the church. I grew up, where we're at now is kind of the tail end of the Bible Belt. I, let's say I grew up in the buckle of the Bible Belt up in Virginia, okay? And so that's where I grew up. I was always in church. I was always uh, involved and heard the gospel. I was always around people who really were just, the best way to describe it is inoculated with the gospel. And so it was, what, what happens, what we're going to see in Matthew 7 is we're going to see two groups that both claim Christianity, both claim to follow Christ, but for one reason or another are not. Their faith is not in Christ alone. So what we're seeing really is characterizations of falsehood, characterizations of falsehood. We're seeing two characterizations of people who claim Christianity but don't actually follow Christ. So this may be a new subject for you. Maybe it's not, maybe, but maybe for those who have never really considered this, um, some common objections that, we might, that you might think of when you're presented with this for the first time is, well, is this even necessary? I mean, if we're trying to get all the people on the same team, if we're, or if we're all trying to be Christians here, aren't we trying to, you know, as long as, as, long as they claim Christ, doesn't that, isn't that enough? Like, shouldn't we try to keep them and try to keep everybody we can? Why should we try to divide? Why should we try to 
figure out truth from falsehood. Maybe some more objections are, isn't this splitting hairs? Isn't this splitting hairs? Why are we diving into something that is, eh, it's, it's, is it really, it's kind of too close to call. You know, I mean, you look like a Christian, act like, yeah, we're good. Just call them and we'll go home and, and we'll be good to go for heaven. And then others may say, well, we shouldn't judge. Only God can judge the heart. And Blake's already talked about this a lot. Um, many people use this. That's, this is probably the most uh, memorized verse by anybody uh, in the world, especially in America. Well, ju- don't judge. Judge not. Don't judge. But what we see is the only thing that is condemned, when we think of passages that say don't judge, lest you be judged, or judge not, uh, like James 4 or in Luke and in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says these things, the only thing that is condemned is those that have not first checked themselves before calling out sin. So he says to judge at your own expense, really. You know, judge, but make sure you check yourself first. You know, call people out on sin. Call them out on the speck in their eye, but make sure you remove the plank first out of your own eye. Does that make sense? So then he says, at the end of those passages, he says, so that then you will be able to get the, the speck out of your brother's eye. So this is really for the benefit of the church. In Matthew and Luke, um, Jesus brings up both of these passages um, to don't do this as a hypocrite, but do this out of love for restoration. That's the whole point of calling each other out on our sin, for restoration and love. Hypocritical judgment, judgment says, you go down, but brotherly love says, brother, come here. Let's go to Christ. Let's go to the cross. Does that make sense? So uh, to further retort these objections, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And again, in 1 Corinthians 11, that we uh, usually read for communion, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we see these are, you know, Paul being very poignant here. And he says to test yourselves, examine yourselves to see that you're in the faith. We'll be able to, as we go through this, we'll be able to understand the differences between um, questioning and examining yourself. But then also the difference of questioning your faith and questioning, am I really saved? The whole point of this is to bring truthhood out. And so maybe you're a Christian here today and, and this has been a struggle for you. Like, I don't know if I'm a believer or not. The go-to place that I'm gonna point you is 1 John. Man, go study that book. Because that's the whole point of 1 John was that to affirm the believers and to also divide out who was not a believer. And that's kind of the crux of what we're talking about today. Does that make sense? So let's read Matthew seven, fifteen. Beware, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Or grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. 
So our first characterization, and we're going to continue on throughout the rest of this passage. Our first characterization is what we see right off the bat, false prophet. Okay? The false prophet. And the first thing that we see is a warning. Now this passage, this group right here about the false prophet comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is what we went through last spring in college ministry. It was such a rich study. I challenge you, if, uh, once you get done with F260, man, plow through the Sermon on the Mount. It's so encouraging. Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus coming in and really flipping religion on its head and really saying, you do these things, but I'm addressing the heart. He says, he says weird things like, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He says things, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So all these things, he starts off and he flips everything on the disciples in, the, in their minds. Um, and by the end of it, we see the great crowds have gathered uh, for the Sermon on the Mount. And we see that everything that Jesus is doing is getting to the heart of the issue. That's where we get the passage about lust, that you, 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 you know, lust after a woman, you commit adultery with her in your heart. That's where we get that sort of passages. So it's always coming down to the heart of the issue. And this continues this tradition. This, this passage continues this, this theme. Beware of false prophets. So he's talking to disciples, you, beware, watch out for false prophets. So the false prophets are those who speak falsely on God's behalf. So they speak falsely on God's behalf. And what does he say about them? He says two things. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So they come in sheep's clothing and they look like sheep on the outside, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. When we think of false prophets, a few names may come to mind. Maybe like Benny Hinn or Creflo Dollar or Kenneth Copeland. Like those are people that, you know, hopefully that we have we've seen their, uh, their labors and we see that they are preying on those uh, by using the words, manipulate word, the word and twist the word to manipulate those to give money for their own benefit. I mean, millions of dollars are being brought in by these guys. Recently, it seemed like Benny Hinn um, was, he was repentant. Um, let's hope that the Lord makes that true and sure. Let's, let's pray that he is like Zacchaeus who gives away all of, in act of repentance, gives away all of his wealth and gives it away because he earned it dishonestly. Um, but as we think about these false prophets, think about these guys who speak falsely on God's behalf. There's a promise here. There's a warning. He says, watch out. But he says, there's a promise. There's a promise. The promise is, verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize the false prophets. How? By their fruit. It's like, don't worry. It's okay. There's these false prophets out there and they're like ravenous wolves. They look like sheep, but don't worry. You will recognize them. You will see that these sheep do indeed have fangs and do in fact howl at the moon. So how will you see this? And he goes on to the example. We see a, um, a warning. We see a promise that you're going to be able to see these. And then how we're going to see them. He gives an example of how we're going to be able to discern them. And he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Our grapes gathered from thorn bushes were figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So how will you see them? How will you recognize them? Good fruit from good trees and bad fruit from bad trees. Wolves may put on sheep clothing, sheep's clothing, but they need to eat meat at some point. 
But if we, if we take into context, context that this is a principle applied to more than just those in the false prophet category, like recognize them by their fruits, what does that ring a bell? You can turn to John 15. John 15, verses one and two. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. He cuts off every branch in me that does not bear fruit. So in Matthew 7, he's talking about the false prophets. You can recognize them by their fruit. But really, this is a, a broader category of you see that a thorn bush produces thorns. And you see that a, a grapevine produces grapes. So it is with those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, it is inevitable that you will bear good fruit, good works. If you are not in Christ, you will not bear good works and you will, bear, you will sin. You will continue in sin. And we see that those who claim to be in Christ but have no fruit, what's the consequence? They are condemned. They're condemned. They're, they're tossed into the fire like in, Matthew, in John 15. So what can we gather from this? So the thought is, well, if you don't bear fruit, you get cut off and die, right? <laughs> like, no. If, if you're not bearing fruit, if you're not bearing fruit, if you are a dead branch, you're condemned already. It's not about trying to earn your way to God. It's about realizing how salvation, how salvation comes. And this is what we're going to see. By bearing no fruit, you are proving that you are not truly in the vine. If you're not bearing fruit, you're proving that you're not truly in the vine. So many times in our world, like now, our reaction to is to when we see this, when we see someone that's not bearing fruit, that should be bearing fruit, we say, act better. Hey, pick them in the pants and hey, do better. Act better. Suck it up. Do better. Why are you not showing any fruit? Do better. When in reality, we may be dealing with a corpse. And we're telling the corpse to get up and go dance or go run. We may be telling someone who is not in Christ to act better when they have no ability to. So how do we do this now? Well, may I humbly submit to you that as a, as a global, not a global, but really just as a country, let's think about it this way. I may humbly submit this to you, and you can do with it what you will. Um, sometimes we do this, we, we expect a, a certain public figure, maybe a political figure, to act a certain way. Or maybe we get burdened by a Christian nation not acting Christian. In reality, it's not really a Christian nation. And there is truly no moral majority. In reality, there are many who claim Christianity, but there is no fruit. I think we've, we've, we have this false dichotomy that if they act good, then they're a believer, then we're good, then, that's, then we're set. But the reality is that they're an eternal soul condemned to hell. So why would we expect dead corpses to act like a Christian nation? Why would we expect sinners to act like Christ? This gives us hope as believers that our hope first and foremost is in a nation, but it supersedes all nations. And this is an everlasting kingdom that will not perish. 
America, as amazing as it is, will perish one of these days. But we are a part of a covenant community that will never perish because of Jesus Christ. That is where our hope is. First and foremost, it is there. It's actually addressed in uh, The Unsaved Christian. Um, there's this, he goes through certain profiles and they're kind of cheeky and funny, but too many times they hit too close to home. And uh, one of the profiles that he goes through that you kind of see in cultural Christianity is uh, the God and country Christian, that, that they are first and foremost, it's, it's God and America and we're all good. And, and, and God's plan is that uh, America is a Christian nation. And that may be like, God may bless us, but first and foremost, it's, it's God first and the church first. America second. That's what it needs to be. Uh, just as another anecdote, another profile that he has in here is the country club Christian. Um, the, you may see this as like just it, that church really for this kind of Christian is just a club for them to be a part of. They kind of pay their member dues with their tithes and they're treated in like and like-mindedness as of how much you give, that's what you get in return from, you know, uh, just relationship with the, even salvation in a certain, you know, like they're super Christian because they give the most money. Uh, and you can see that these churches, um, if they're filled and if, if they promote this culture of this kind of country club Christian, these churches avoid hard topics. And, and this, I'm quoting from his book here. They functionally forbid the confrontation of personal sin and only make expectations related to financial contribution. So everything's related about money. These churches might have incredible music in their service, exciting environments for children and youth ministries, an amazing communicator for a pastor. People receive self-help advice accompanied by Bible verses that point to a moral and inspiring life. That's sad. There are cultural Christians who, who fit this mold. You may think of some now that fit this mold. That, that's, it's more about being comfortable than it is counting the cost to follow Jesus. Next, uh, another profile I'll just touch on. This will be the last one I touch on is the, the creaster. You know what I'm talking about. It's the person that only shows up uh, just for tradition's sake uh, on Christmas and Easter. The creasters. And they do this to help kind of inoculate themselves to uh, their own sin. And they, they got enough, just enough tradition to be good, right? They do just enough, just enough. They go to the, they hit the big time. They hit the, the big categories of Christmas and Easter because if you miss those, you're not Christian in their minds. But in reality, there is no faith. All right, so let's take a break from that. Let's go back to the text. Verse 19, unyielding tree is cut down. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Just like in John 15, those who do not produce fruit are condemned to hell, no matter what they claim. Their claim is nullified by their actions. It's proven false. They show that they have no faith because they do not bear fruit. Or they really, they bear fruit. It's just they're claiming to be a grapevine, but they're bearing fruit as a thorn bush. This is weighty. This is weighty because salvation is at stake. Understanding the faith in Jesus Christ, the grace that is received by faith in Jesus Christ, this is what we're talking about. This is the difference. So this is how you recognize them by their fruit in verse 20. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. So false prophets and really just people that 
you, you can see who are Christians and not. You'll see these people that they'll claim Christ, but really you'll know that they're not in Christ because of their fruits. Does that make sense? You're tracking with me? That this is, this is a person who claims, and I'm sure you may have someone that you're thinking of right now. Someone that claims, oh yeah, I believe. Absolutely. But they're going out and um, there's no repentance of sin. Um, there is only, you know, they're dwelling, they're living in sin. There is no repentance. Probably don't go to church that often. And this is weighty. This, this is a vast majority of who are in Abilene. So the false prophets and kind of this cultural Christianity that we see here, they're seen by their actions and are condemned. If they reprint, really see, we see this in Matthew 18. I talked about it this morning in uh, college. Matthew 18 is important because, let's, let's kind of break it down a little bit, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 18, if a brother is in sin, go to them and tell them their fault. If they repent, praise God, because they are bearing fruit in repenting and believing. If you go to them and, and you call them out in their sin and they repent, praise God. They're proving that they are Christ's disciples by obeying him, by following his commandments. But if they don't, then bring a witness. If they repent, praise God, they are bearing fruit of faith by repenting. But if not, bring it before the church, bring them before the church. And if they repent, repent, praise God that they are bearing fruit of faith. But if not, then excommunicate them. Then treat them as a Gentile. Why? Because they have just proved themselves a child of Satan rather than God. Because they're not, they're not repenting. A child of God would produce the fruit of repentance. So it kind of begs the question, where do we draw the line? <laughs> like what is, uh, what is too much or what is not? Go ahead and turn to 1 John 1.8. We may kind of set up this false dichotomy in our minds of kind of like a, a tax system of just like, well, I've got more good deeds than bad deeds. No, it's not that at all. Go to First John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We can stop there. If we sin, we repent and turn to Jesus. If a non-believer sins, they do not repent and they are hardened and they, they don't, they're haters of God. What have we learned in the first three chapters of Romans? They are haters of God. They do not want God. They don't want to have anything to do with God. So we prove who we are when we sin. The unbeliever continues sinning the believer repents and welcomes that forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. So if you are struggling with your faith, what is the fruit of repentance in your life? Because we are all sinners saved by grace. We're not perfect. 
And we are not called to be perfect because that would be taking Christ off the cross and trying to be, put ourselves up there. Christ was perfect for us. And we are sanctified. We are made holy like Christ by repenting and turning to Christ, not to ourselves. So we get that profile. Now let's go on to the next one in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. At first glance, this may seem just like he's talking about the same group of people. It's the people who give lip service to God, but don't actually obey. Like they say, Lord, Lord. But look at what they say. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in that in your name? Look at that word, that day. Now, we probably know what he's talking about there, but especially the Jews knew what he was talking about because this word, uh, day, chimera, has judicial implications. So that day means it's, it's judgment day. That's basically what he's talking about. Judgment day. So it's like going to have to work jury duty. <laughs> that, you know, if we get that summons, we know exactly when that day is. It's on our calendar, we remark it, and that's basically judgment day. <laughs> So we don't want to have to go do that. So that day has legal connotations to it, and it means their court date. Look at else? Look what else it says. On that day, many. This is heavy stuff. On that day, many. These people that he's talking about in verses 21 through 23 are many. Many. Just look back up to verse 13. Back up a few verses. Matthew seven thirteen. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So these people on this day, on this judgment day, there are many. This is the majority On that day, they will call on the name of the Lord and they will say, Lord, Lord, put him in authority, put him in a place in authority. Of course he will because he is judge and he will show himself as judge. They claim that they know the Lord, but then look at what they do. This is what separates them from the previous verses, the previous characterization. They point to their works, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Pretty, pretty good looking works there, you might say. The judge's response says, I, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you what? You workers of lawlessness. How can you say that casting out demons and prophesying and doing all these many mighty works is lawlessness? How can Jesus say that? Let's zoom out a little bit. 
Zoom, zoom back out, have a big picture. Didn't Jesus just say back in verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruit? And these people point to their fruit and have seemingly good fruit. Not just like a, a little fruit, not just kind of like the prepackaged frozen fruit that you see at Walmart. It seems like pretty good, luscious, good looking fruit. But their good works are of no value. So like, is Jesus contradicting himself? Like you're gonna know them by their fruit, but not know them by their fruit because they have pretty good fruit. What's going on? Are we to recognize them by their fruit or are we not to? These seem to be the most religious people, pretty good people, right? These seem to be really great people. They'll probably, today's language, say, didn't we do all these mighty works in your name? Didn't we go to church every Sunday? And didn't we read our Bibles? Didn't we worship with our hands raised? Didn't we vote Republican? Didn't we never drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do? Didn't we lead Bible studies in Sunday school classes? And didn't we get baptized? Didn't we say a prayer, raise a hand, and walk an aisle? Didn't we do these things? This is why we need to split hairs. This is why we need to have fine-tuned theology. We have to zoom way back in, zoom in. Look at their response in verse 22. Lord, Lord, look at the fourth word in this answer. Lord, Lord, did we. Lord, Lord, did we. This is why we need to communicate the gospel with clarity. This is why we, we rightly need to understand salvation. This is why we need to stick to God's word. That's where they got it all wrong. You see, they said, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things? And they should have said something like, Lord, Lord, did you not die for sinners like me? We're saved by grace through faith. And we get that, but this is where it comes where the rubber meets the road. We're, we're like, it says, we know we're not saved by works, right? But we're really not saved by works. Lord, Lord, do we not do these things? We're not by works so that no one may boast. It's not the prayer that saves. It's not the fact that you're a Republican that saves. It's not because you walked an aisle that you are saved. The boast belongs only to Jesus. The only thing that we supply to that salvation is the sin that made it necessary in the first place. That's from Jonathan Edwards. So here, this, especially in verse 21 through 23, I present to you the unsaved Christian, a person who talks like a Christian and takes it the next step further, may even act like a Christian, but their heart is far from God and is, is more akin to Satan and the demons because their salvation is based on their works and not on the finished work of Jesus Christ. James is right in saying, James is right in saying, show me your faith by your works. He even uses the language of justification by works, but it's always preceded by faith. Why? And how? Through Jesus Christ. We prove 
that we are believers by doing, having these fruits, but we are not saved by these fruits. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Go back up to verse 21. This is very, this is where, in, in conclusion. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not, all, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, if you're a disciple hearing that, you're like, what is, what is the will of the Father? Please let me know what that is because I'm condemned. Doesn't really explicitly say here, he alludes to it, especially in 24 through uh, 27 when it talks about building your foundation on a firm foundation. How firm a foundation? That foundation is Jesus Christ. Don't put it on your own works. Don't build your house on your own works. Build it on the sure work of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.23, this is the answer. What is the will of the Father? This is it. 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Knowing Jesus is loving Jesus, is obeying Jesus. If we know Jesus, then we love him and we show that we love him by obeying him. And the commandment is that we believe in Jesus. If you obey the will of the Father, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, if you obey God by believing in Jesus Christ and therefore show that you have faith in him by loving others, you are doing the will of the Father. This is not a one-time thing either because many of us disqualify or we try to qualify someone's salvation by saying, well, at one time they did believe. I know that they said a prayer but they live like the world right now. Yeah, but they're saved by that, by that faith back then. Well, look at um, verse, on that day, me will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? Oh, sorry, in verse 21. Will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. That word does. It's a present participle meaning it's ongoing behavior. So the person who does this every once in a while or used to do this or did this once upon a time does not qualify. The one who does the will of the Father. We show that we are in Christ. We show that we are in the vine by producing grapes and that grapes is faith in Jesus Christ daily. So maybe you're sitting here thinking to yourself about all this. And you're examining yourself like First and Second Corinthians tells us. If I were to ask you, how do you know that you're saved? What would you say? Would you say, similar to the second characterization, didn't I say a prayer? Didn't I, don't I go to church? Didn't I read my Bible? Didn't I lead a family devotional? Didn't I become a member? Didn't I, didn't I, didn't I? Or simply is it, I believe that Jesus died to save sinners. 
I pray that's all of our answers today that I believe, I know that I'm saved because Jesus died to save sinners of which I am, I am chief of sinners. Without him, there is no hope. I don't do anything on my own accord. I don't earn salvation on my own accord. I just have faith and believe that Jesus Christ is the savior and he saves sinners. Any fruit that I produce is only because you produce it in me through the Holy Spirit. I come because of the cross I come because you have drawn me and in response to that great love with which you love me, I lay down my life at the foot of the cross, which is my only hope. I pray that that would be all of our answers today. Wrestle with this. Maybe you know someone and maybe you've been thinking wrongly about their salvation. Talk to them, have a pointed conversation with them. Ask them about their life in church. Ask them about how are they, what, is, what, what are you learning through scripture? How is sin going? How, are you repenting from sin? This is a heavy topic. This is a heavy, heavy, weighty topic. But there is freedom in Christ and only in Christ. Thinking that we are earning salvation by ourselves is a weight that we could never bear by our own works. That is a weight that we can never bear and that many that we know are trying to bear and they're going to fail at. Let us be faithful to share this gospel with them by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ.